Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, business reformer and the author of Reboot, a blueprint for happy human business in the digital age, Jason Stockwood. The conversation I'm more interested in having with people is how do we use technology for the betterment of humanity rather than making four or five companies astronomically rich. Jason will be showing us how to minimize the negative externalities of big business and build companies that have no negative impact on anyone. It all comes down to the bizarre idea of providing goods and services that people actually need. Could such a radical business concept catch on today? It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. There's a whole lot going on to tell you about. Uh, We're going slightly more freeform with our production. I'm going to be leaving on book tour soon, at least what feels like soon, end of January. And uh, rather than going on hiatus, we think we should strike while the iron is hot, as they say, do interviews on the road, do monologues from hotel rooms after events. And uh, we're getting used to that sort of pacing right now. Um, Yes, Team Human, the book is coming out at the end of January. It's available as a premium for supporting the show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You can also just buy Team Human as a book or an ebook or an audio book by going to your favorite uh, real or online book merchant. It's a nice little hardback book. It's like a little red book or manifesto or something. I really just love it for its its object value. It seems more like a book of you know 1960s poetry than some uh, uh, you know 21st century screed. Uh, We're doing a whole bunch of Team Human lives and book events. I'll tell you about a few of them here, but you can find them all on teamhuman.fm. Most 
uh, imminently December 13th. We're doing a Team Human Live in New York City at Civic Hall with Mark Pesci, who's the co-inventor of virtual reality markup language, a futurist and a cultist, someone who's thinking a whole lot about uh, blockchain and hyperspace and a whole bunch of fun things. And then we're also going to be engaging with Penny Abiwardina, who's New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs. She's the person who deals with uh, diplomats and diplomacy in New York, all the UN sorts of people. And she's got some really interesting views on how cities are emerging as really the new nations, uh, at least in terms of their ability to deal with our collective challenges in ways that some nation states now seem utterly incapable of addressing. To find out about those things, go to teamhuman.fm and click on events. I'm going to be doing all sorts of live stuff on the road. I'm doing uh, New York the week of January 22nd. I'll be at McNally Jackson and Civic Hall. I'm going to Politics and Prose in D.C. I'm hopefully doing something with Upright Citizens Brigade in Los Angeles. I'll be in San Francisco January 29th at City Light, January 30th at Commonwealth Club. I'm then back in New York. I'm doing an event with Naomi Klein at WNYC Greenspace. I'm going to be at uh, the Media Lab in Boston on February 6th and Harvard Books. I'm coming to London the week of February 14th. I'm doing the RSA in the British Library. Going to Portland. I'm doing an event with KXRY at Team Human Live on February 22nd. And I'll be up in Toronto in March and South by Southwest in March. So uh, hopefully I'll get to see a whole lot of you. Um, it's going to be it's going to be fun. These will be these will be interesting events. They're not like book readings. They're going to be you know live engagements. Let's let's you know mix it up. Let's find out what's going on. Meanwhile, I've been reading a whole lot about. Uh, algorithms, you know, and there's a whole lot of stuff that's finally people that are, are, you know, onto the sort of memes that I'm talking about in, in the Team Human book. They're, most of these treatments, they're, they're really practical. You know, they're looking at, well, how do you use algorithms for the prison system? Or how can we use algorithms for this? And are machines better than people or worse than people? And what are we going to do? And how does machine learning work and all? And I'm trying to think a little bit more, uh, almost poetically about it. You know, I'm really trying to look at algorithms from the perspective of human beings. And one big story that's out there now is the story of of Facebook's demise. A lot of people are thinking that Facebook is kind of going to be over now because of the, uh, what's a nice word for it, the, the duplicity of its its CEO and chief marketing officer about what they knew and when they knew it and this sort of effort to cover up or ignore what was going on with uh, them being used as a propaganda engine for Russia. And I can think of one more use for uh, Facebook before before you delete it. Uh, mine's deleted, so I can't. But the interesting thing about Facebook is as far as I'm concerned, is what Facebook thinks of you. It's it's funny. You know, I, I know we sometimes get annoyed when you see what ads are showing up on your email or what what banner ads are showing up on your on your web pages you visit. You think, oh gosh, you know, the web really thinks I like to go outdoors a whole lot more than I do, or why would they think I'm interested in this? And 
Facebook is a place where the whole website really configures itself to what its algorithms think about you, what they think they know about who you are. And when you look at it, when you look at your newsfeed, what about instead of thinking of it in terms of, oh gosh, I hate them because they're trying to make me more this or make me more that. What if we look at it just for a moment as, well, why do they think I'm that kind of person? In other words, if your newsfeed is filled up with conspiracy theories and gun advertisements, well, why does Facebook think that you're like that? What clues are you giving it? You know, if it thinks that you're, you know, just a progressive and just a vegan or something, well, maybe that that's what you want it to think of you, that you are progressive and you are vegan and yay, it, it recognizes me. But where it's interesting is where it seems wrong. And then you have to ask yourself, well, is it wrong just because its algorithms are bad? Or is it wrong because there's something that I'm doing? Is there something I'm doing to make it think that way about me? And I know that's a dangerous place to go. I mean, you can't you can't really do that in the real world so much. Oh, you know, are people bullying me because I'm projecting the image of a wimp, or do they think I'm this? Because you know, that's uh, in many, many, many cases, it's it's their problem, not ours. But it's a fun thought experiment, just as an exercise. I understand that algorithms are not neutral. It's not like a psychologist reflecting back to you. It's not a true, genuine, neutral mirror. It's basically. You know, this is basically capitalism's view of you. you know, the whole platform is built on that foundational understanding of the human personality as some kind of a, a self-interested consumer. But I'm interested in what does that algorithm think about me? What if we treated it as some kind of a weird mirror and then wonder, well, what could I change about my web habits, about the things I do online to change the way it thinks about me? What kind of websites does the person I want Facebook to think I am, what kind of websites does that person visit? In other words, you could use Facebook or really or any predictive algorithm as almost as a like a Fitbit or a biofeedback device. The, the Fitbit will tell you, look, you don't really walk around much. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get unhealthy or overweight unless you uh, get more heartbeats going. So maybe the most valuable thing about algorithms is not their utility value, but the opportunity they give us, those, those of us who are consciously moving through the world, the, the opportunity they give us to really explore this space between what they assume and what we think about ourselves. In other words, one way to know what aspects of our humanity are not genuinely computational is to look at the algorithms on our lives and see their limits. You know, what do the algorithms running the education platforms, what do they miss about learning? What, what do sentencing algorithms miss about criminality and, and rehabilitation? What are economic algorithms? What do they miss about human prosperity? So even if we utterly reject algorithmic solutions to the world's problems, I think that by looking at how algorithms fail, we can just maybe come to a better understanding of how we humans can succeed. 
I'm Chinjirai Kumanika, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nora Bateson, and I'm on Team Human. This is Susan Basterfield. I am on Team Human. I'm Anthony Cabral, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is Jason Stockwood, author of Reboot. There are not many super successful people who I trust these days. I think because I'm figuring that if they got successful in the current economic environment, they must be up to no good somehow. But our guest today, Jason Stockwell, really means to be part of the solution. He's a board member of a UK organization called B Corp, helping large companies pivot towards social responsibility. And he's also the author of a new book called Reboot, as well as a longtime member of the extended team human community. All right, so so I'm here. I'm in, in the Hastings on Hudson Annex of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism, sitting with my my friend Jason Stockwood, who has a, a you've got a, an interesting story. You're not you're not the typical team human guest. Usually, team human guests are people who are you know struggling to make ends meet, maybe working as a barista in the Starbucks during the day and then uh, planning an internet revolution at night. Um, and you actually, you uh, you started out probably with less means than most of us. You were a, a little working class Brit or something, right? That's me. So it's, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here, Doug. And um, so at least I've got some credibility. I have been, I have been that barista. <laughs> I know. And, you know. I started off my my first job was a waiter, and then I worked on the docks in the north of England. So you know, I've done. That's I've, as I, cool as it gets. Well, did it, you have it, a little? Did you have a little pocket knife in your back pocket? <laughs> it didn't feel cool at the time. Did you it was get very fights cold. and stuff? Very cold. I mean, I did, a dock I, worker. Yeah, I, mean, I, did, I did actually. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I mean, that's that's probably the whole of the story actually. But I did, I did have a you know, a colourful upbringing. And some of that was, you know, some of those um, sort of scrapes. And particularly in the northeast of England, where I'm from, there's a great book by Joe Grayson Perry, the artist. So he wrote a great book called The Descent of Man, I think it was called. And um, he explained how these industrial towns had a had a overhang of machismo and hardness and physicality, but none of the words to go with it. So I grew up in that culture where you had to be hard, you had to be tough, and actually there was no there was nothing to be tough for anymore. It was weird because the mining had gone and the shipyards had gone and the the fisheries had gone. Huh. So it was a weird it was a weird time. But I had a good childhood. But it was a, it was a weird it was a weird very working class. Very traditional single parent family, three brothers, no money. But it was it was fun. I had a good time. And then, what did you end up going to college? No, it was, again, it was really liberating. So on paper, it, it didn't look very auspicious that I, I again, single parent, um, council estate as they call it in the UK, which is like social housing. But but my mum was out working all the time, so I, we were left to our own devices. So I just mucked about. I followed my passions, and I had a bit of intelligence, but I didn't apply myself at school. But weirdly. I wanted to come to the US at the time in the sort of 80s. The US was like this big idea of consumerism and sports and TV and six million dollar man. And, right. and I was like, I want to go and I want to go and eat an ice, a trough of ice cream, you know, because you could in LA and you know, I wanted to drive a yeah. big car. And so I, I applied and I got a scholarship to come to a high school here for a year. Um, which was weird as well. A sort of working class boy from the north of England supplanted into a private school in Virginia, and it was a completely wow. surreal experience. And um, and then I, and then I, and then I decided I got the episode. I started to read, and then I started to educate myself. So I started. So you to, got it. So going to that private school though, 
ended up being almost less a, 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 a cultural experience for them than a, an immersion in academia and scholarly work in literature There's for nothing you. Nothing else to do. So basically, <laughs> I read. I started to get a love of American literature and English literature, and I'd follow the root sources back and end up at philosophy. And so I started to read philosophy. Huh. So I, I came back to the UK at a time when you could get a free education. Um, and I went to study philosophy just because it was fun. It was interesting to me. But there's a couple of years in between where I went on a kibbutz in Israel. I came back to Florida. I worked at Disney World in the Epcot Center. Oh, wow. And I traveled around for a year. In the England about, part of the Epcot exactly Center? Exactly. Yeah. You know, the bad trousers. <laughs> and, the, and I get asked like 10 times a day, was I from like Arkansas? And I was putting on an English accent. You know, so. But it was great. I was great. Fun. So I just did stuff for fun. And I, and I continued to do stuff for fun. Did my degree in philosophy. Had no plan off the back of that. And I had some friends living in London at the time and I came down and basically went clubbing for three years, slept on my friend's floor, got a job in a travel company. And then and then I got a massive stroke alert. The internet was starting to happen. And I got a job with one of the startups that ended up being a massive success called lastminute.com. And so then, and then you did, that was a, like an insurance.com thing. No, that was, um, that was a travel that got bought, oh. that got bought by Travelocity. Uh-huh. And then I went to, I went to run match.com outside the US. Uh-huh. So I, when, you know, mid 2000s, when you know, you'd rather admit to being an axe murderer than being on an online dating site. Yeah. And so I did that and it was great fun. You know, I, um, we, we sort of launched it and, and again, we just had a ton of money from IAC, big marketing organization. Right. And it became the business that it is today. And that was sold in 2010. And then I wanted to go into another industry that's badly underserved. So I picked the, you know, in my mind, the worst product that there is their insurance. People right. don't want it. They don't understand it. You know, it's hard. They don't believe it's going to work for them. And they get ripped off. That was it. That was the idea. And, a, and, and so I wanted to build a business in a market where we could preference the customer and do something that the internet has done for the, in other markets as well. Right. And because you had real experience in these companies, at that point you were able to, you know, you did a business plan and you go to investors and get venture capital and do it. Was it all like well, that? Well, um, I bought into an asset that had, it was a business already. It had four or five different businesses, but insurance was a small part of it. And then we used that as a, as a, as a sort of a, a starting point where we built the company out there. And, you know, it's called Simply Business. It's about half a million customers. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and we, and we sold that last year. So it's been, it's been great fun and, and, and it still feels like a, a bit of an incomplete work, but it's been, um, it's been a ride. But now you didn't have, I mean, sometimes you talk to someone who's been in business and they're like, oh my God, I've seen what, what horrible things we're doing or just using cash and we're extracting value from people and all that. Um, you didn't have a, a reckoning so much as just a continuing opening to, uh, I guess, to the idea of the different things that were being externalized by business and, uh, uh, in other words, less of a less of a of a hundred and eighty degree pivot, and more of a kind of a, an increasing amount of awareness about the impact of business on the people in it, the people outside it, and now you're you're really kind of at the forefront on a almost a business reform agenda. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I'm an accidental business person, I'd explain it. None of this was planned, as you can tell by my background. So I stumbled into stuff, had an amazing stroke of good luck and good fortune, you know, being around when the internet was starting to make sense for people. Um, and, and so I've always wanted to build businesses I want to work in. It's never been about making money solely. Shareholders are important, but I never, no one gets out of bed thinking about shareholders. And so I wanted to build communities, people who care about each other, love each other. They're doing good work together. They're having fun together. So, and so we, we, we built businesses that, that 
have really felt like a part of life rather than this this weird idea that works something distinct from everything else you do. It's never made sense to me that. So the businesses that we've created and we've had some success and won awards for has always been just an extension of how you think about your life in the round rather than something abstracted from it. Right. It's part of it. But but now you're not you're not in business business now. You're kind of in in meta business. You're in business I mean I would call it business reform. I mean you're you're doing what's it called? B yeah, so, uh, so I'm on the I'm a trustee for B Corp in the UK. Right now, which, B Corp is basically like here. It's a it's kind of a benefit benefit corporations it's corporations exactly that. that are there not just to serve shareholders but have specific stated goals that could be to fix the environment, to help people get educated, to do good things. They're not nonprofits, but they don't they don't have a shareholder value as their sole purpose for being. That's exactly it, and it, and it, was, it was so obvious. It, I mean, it's, it's an extension of the B Corps organization in the in the US, and so the B Lab in the UK is the European offshoot of that, and it's exactly that, which is, you know, shareholders actually are important. You know, you need to make money to do the things you want to do, but it, it's not the only reason people run businesses. It's about thinking about society, thinking about the environment, thinking about employees, and again, thinking about the true value of a business being its full social context rather than just does it create a return for, you know, faceless people, you know, somewhere else in the world. If you're not a B Corp, is it really true that your shareholders can just force you to do nasty things and or kick you out? I mean, is the CEO really just have to serve them and can't say, but wait a minute, we're polluting. Wait a minute. The 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 children are dying. It's really funny, right? So, I mean, your, your work's educated me over the years, Doug, but I've, I've thought a lot about this. There's no legal, there's no legal parameters that said that they can do that to you. That's, that's a misconception. Right. You know, people have often cited the shareholder primacy, and it's a fallacy, right? It is, isn't right. it? Yeah. Absolutely. And so I've looked at this legally, and it's interesting. So, so one of the people I interviewed for my book was um, someone on the board of a big um, chemicals company, and she read, she read the draft, and she said to me, oh, this thing about shareholder primacy not being legal, she said, that's not true. And I was like, it Absolutely is. And she went through a merger. She told me that she went through a merger a few years ago where the lawyers advised her our one concern is for shareholders. And so it does happen. So there are there are instances, and I've been through private equity deals where, you know, part of the reason for wanting to write something was I've had some sobering experiences where I mean one example was I was in a meeting six, seven years ago with a bunch of bankers in one of the, as you can imagine, a sort of a faceless boardroom somewhere. And we're talking about the deal and the money we would make. And this guy leans in in front of everyone and said, oh, oh, good news. I've got a way where none of us can pay tax on this. And like, like, a, like a celebrity, yeah. and I was like, where's that a good idea? Where's that a good idea if the people in this room aren't paying taxes? He said to me, you're the first person in 22 years that's asked that question. So it, it does happen. But I think there are enough people um, that are thinking differently and the B Corps represents that to think there's a movement that you know people want to work for places that have a soul have a heart have a vision that I'm optimistic that it can change but it's, def it's definitely been the case you know sort of neoliberal philosophy since the 50s Milton Friedman it's definitely happened right where profit has been the sole motivation but it right. feels like there's a change in the air right and it's, it's interesting if you are a B Corp even if you do have investors or you're on the open stock exchange and all in a way it's a it's a social signal to the investment community that, oh, well, this company is thinking of things a little differently. And to some investors, they'll go, oh, good. This is a business that's thinking long term, that this is a business I can invest in and not have to worry that they're going to just sell their souls next in the next 18 months and I've got to sell my stock. That's completely it. I mean, I mean it's interesting. Right? So there's a, there's a legal change to your article. So by becoming a B Corps, you have to commit legally to considering stakeholders in the round. So there is a legal constitution that, that you know, you, you actually, 
actually have to affect real change in how you run the company. But more more than that, it is it's the it's the signals to employees. It's the right thing to do by the environment. It's the you know the signal to types of investors that you want in your business. And then look. In, if you know, if, if CEOs talk about you know hiring people as the biggest challenge that they've got, it's such a it's such a shortcut you know into the type of business that you are. Cause it's hard to be accredited, and it stands for something substantial. And so, if you're someone looking for the type of business you want to work for, it's a good cipher for some things being done in the right spirit. I think. Right. I mean, and is there fine? I mean, I did a sort of a mean monologue about this uh, ETF, an exchange traded fund called Just Capital. Um, because it just seems like it's just a, a, another filter. But um, one of the things they found is that, you know, each of the metrics that they're using to, to judge uh, socially responsible businesses, like they reinvest in their community, they give uh, maternity leave to the mothers, um, they respect the environment, they're moving towards zero emissions, they don't do, um, uh, uh, they don't support slavery in other countries, that each of those factors make for better long-term success of the business. I mean, and even in terms of, I mean, not to offend anybody, but revenue. You know, just, they actually make more money in the long run if they don't screw people over, if they don't uh, ruin the topsoil or the environment. It's just so obvious, right? I mean, it seems the, it, I, I, was, I, was, but, I was explaining to people in the last sort of 10 years, I'm like, if I, if I was entirely evil, which it's not for me to comment that I'm not, but I'm not, you know, <laughs> that, that you would do this anyway, right? you know, because you, you attract better talent, you, you keep people interested, you motivate people in the right way. And most of all, like we, 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 one of the things I'm proudest of in the businesses that I've run in the last 10 years is that we made everyone a shareholder. Every single person, when we've had capital events through selling or raising money, people buy houses and cars and put their kids through school. And, and that, you know, it just, not only does it feel right, but you guess how motivated people are to want to work with you right. for the long term if they know that they're going to benefit. So I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's so obvious to me that this is the right way to create great businesses that create great shareholder value. And so I struggle to see why people, you know, in a day and age where the culture of your business is absolutely side by side to how your customers perceive you there's the, the gap is zero these days i mean how far would you go into a, a employee shareholder ownership i mean you know like uh, uh you know there's some companies out there and they you know get a lot of headlines for oh we're going to give 10 percent of our shares to our employees versus what you know, trevor schultz who helped start the platform cooperative movement he was on on our show argues for total employee ownership and governance you know so it's a cooperative where everybody owns equal shares yeah i mean i i think that there's a i mean we found in our business that, that, that people value it in different ways so if it, like if i was 21 starting out you know in sort of the working world again you know and it was the difference between getting an extra thousand pounds a year or some equity you take the money because your near-term needs of what am I doing this weekend, or where am I going on holiday? Are more important than am I paying my rent? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so it's not. It's, it shouldn't be a trade off in my mind. So, you know, you know, in in when we started with Simply Business, we made sure that we've increased people's salaries every year, pensions. You know, we made sure people get more holiday time. You know, we have complete flexible benefits, and the equity was just one part of it. It was never we'll give them equity, but you have to trade off this. So, there's been some schemes right. in Europe where people give up rights. So, you know, some of their employment rights into return for equity. And that just seems to me the wrong trade. Oh, that's right, some you know? weird human resources scam. That's not fair. I mean, the 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 problem, the challenge for most people who are listening. Uh, so the um, Suzanne is a, a a great listener and community member of ours, and she runs a bakery in Vermont. It's a great solar powered bakery, and she is operating at 
capacity in terms of she makes bread, she's got her employees. So how how does she do the kinds of things you're talking about? Increase the the their pay, increase their their vacation, give them more ownership when her business is not growing. You know? Yeah, well, I think it's a different mindset about, I mean, again, there's not one size fits all in terms of types of businesses right. as well. So I've been fortunate that because of the internet and the, the scaling opportunities. Yeah, your yeah. businesses that scale. I mean, the trick is there's so many businesses that that can't, that, that shouldn't scale, that are a pro- Joe's Pizzeria. He makes, you know, 70 pizzas a day. It's and fine. But given inflation, given that employees are working hard and want to see things improve for themselves, how does he, in other words... It, do you have? I mean, do you have advice for these kinds of businesses? No, look, I, I, I tell you, as I get older, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm late forties now, and, and I think about the, the reason You're again. Just I a run, baby. Did, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I don't look that. But it's the, the, you know, the idea for me is that I, the, what's the world my kids are going to inhabit? And again, from reading your work over the years, you know, the end state for me has always been about how do I become more happy, fulfilled. It's never been about amassing money or states. Uh, so, 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 if you're owning a bakery and running it and creating a great product that you know I have this romantic view that actually that sort of life for me would be phenomenal where you do something really well and you're part of a community and that that's success to me it is but it's so hard in the current environment because and not to blame you because there's so many companies that are growing that Mm -hmm. are scaling it's creating a a scalar economy Mm -hmm. in which it's really hard to be a small sustainable business Mm -hmm. even if you're just a pizzeria on main street in burlington vermont you know there's once the starbucks comes in and the rents are going up and inflation is happening your people want more you've got to pay more rent you've got to find a way to somehow generate more income you can't charge more for the pizza because at a certain point you can't charge 30 yeah. 50 bucks for a it's pizza di- yeah look it's, it's complex i don't want no simple yeah. answer that. i think that I'm, I'm optimistic that you know i, I live in you know, i've moved my family out of london after 20 years so i live in in the north of england again now so i've gone back to my roots and I think there's a local community where I live and I think people appreciate the value of those businesses in a way that we've sort of lost track of right. to the 80s and 90s where it was like cheaper quicker you know just just commodity whereas people I think there's an appreciation of quality and craftsmanship and, and not to the point where it can be disproportionately expensive but I do think there's something about that where people are buying you know the nature I think the luxuries in the future will be the handmade where you can have a relationship with the people that. I'm optimistic you have to believe, believe in that stuff yeah. otherwise the idea of just buying more shit, consumers pumped out by Amazon and wherever else, just doesn't seem like a world that is that much space for for the sort of, sort of people that would listen to this podcast. I think right, so. right. The price is really low, but the cost is really high. You know, in the long run, but it's 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 tricky to maintain both styles of business, both kinds of of finance in the same economy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how we how we push through that, whether the big economy crashes, you know, and then I mean, do you feel like I mean, not that your ears are on the track, but when you look at sort of the 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 larger economic force, do you feel like there's sort of something bad coming to, to I do well a I do twenty five thousand point Dow, you know? I think I think we're living it. I mean it's it's interesting again, and I don't know whether the benefit of getting a bit older and you have, you know, you have some more miles on the clock and you've seen perspective. One of the catalysts for writing the book was that having young kids, having a nine and a seven year old, and I was looking at the sort of chances I had with, with my inauspicious, even, you no know, 
tough-guy-duck-working background I've described to you. It's like, I had opportunities. I could go to free university. The job market was pretty reasonable. I could travel. You know, I felt like I'd been having a, had a fairly charmed life, even though I started with nothing. Exactly. And even and yet, though, and it's funny, because I know we were complaining in the, in the 80s that, oh, the baby boomers took everything. We right. got nothing. They had sex. We get AIDS. They had, you know, free college, and we get inflation. But still, compared to now... You so can still get in the states. You can get a Pell Grant. You could get. There were yeah. ways to get through the SUNY and the Cal State system. You could get through it for you feel, relatively for free. Because I feel, I feel like, and I feel like the wheels have come off. So if I if I think about sort of the timeline from the fifties, neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, you know, ends in Reagan and Thatcher, and then this sort of consumer boom through right. the internet, and then two thousand and eight, where people look around, and if you're a if you're an eighteen year old kid from the northeast England where I was from now. And, you know, university is out of reach. The job markets, you know, is 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 insubstantial if, that, if they're at all. That exchange program probably doesn't exist that's, anymore. Yeah, that's, unless, unless you're a certain type of person that right. probably can afford it. You know, the, the housing market in the UK is out of reach for most people. Don't even think about pensions in a life where you're going to be living 20, 30 years longer. So this is why we've got Trump and Brexit and all that nonsense is that there's a backlash and it just feels, it feels tangible and different that there's a generation coming through that now they just go, this bullshit isn't working. We need something different. It won't be going to go work for Microsoft and Google and, and do that. It's going to be, how do I build a community? How do I recognize a life that is sustainable and and makes me happy rather than thinking that if I just work hard and I can buy a house and pension and drop off a cliff at some point and think of that as success. It's just, it's just life's, the, the whole model's changed, I think. And I think, and it feels like, I'm not just saying this because, you know, I, I'm at that age, but it feels tangible. It feels different because it's so broken now. And so I'm optimistic that there are, you know, younger generation coming through that are looking for different things and looking for different ways and different models that might not be new, but they're new compared to what we've lived through the last 30 years, I think. And you see, I mean, in your book, Reboot is written, I mean, as I read it, it seems to be written more for kind of teaching the people who are running uh, medium to large companies how to really you know, kind of steer them more towards uh, sustainable behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, I started off very left-wing in my upbringing and, and my sort of political leanings. And, and you know, while still left-wing, I, I believe that, you know, a form of capitalism that is fairer, more equitable, you know, shares the benefits that is, is, a, is, good, is a good chance of sustaining, you know, a lot of the positivities that we've seen in the last 30, 40 years. So I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a model, I've thought about politics and I go, well, actually... That just doesn't seem like a life where you can make a real impact. And actually, if you can employ people and give them good livelihoods where they build communities, work with people they love and care, they keep growing and learning, they make money. That seems like a decent model to give people a chance of having a decent start in life, I think, or a decent sustainable lifestyle. So my bet is that, that I think the, the stuff that I've learned and the experience that I've had, it's, 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 it's the, what I know in terms of creating lives of meaning and purpose and, and creating wealth for people as well. So I, I think it's my best effort to describe a world that's fairer and yet at the same time, it's what I know. Right. I mean, the thing I was arguing in, in Throwing Rocks to Google Bus by the end of it is that, that companies have to learn to make their customers rich. 
you know, which got everyone upset when I was talking about it. But make your customers rich, make your employees rich, make your suppliers rich. Everyone's going to want to work with you if you're making them all rich. And people are like, well, wait a minute. If you're making them rich, then we're not making enough money. I'm like, no, what, what about feeding the marketplace on which you're depending so that it's just frothy with cash yeah. for you to make money rather than draining your marketplace? And then what? Then you move on to somewhere else. And it seems like that's a similar philosophy with, with Reboot that, that, wait a minute, each of the people that you're interacting with should be someone who's uh, happy for having yeah, interacted it's, it's with you. We've, we've sort of lost, we've just lost track of, you know, and again... Because and, and you talk to anyone supplying Amazon or Walmart, everybody's unhappy, everybody's being squeezed. And it's just, we've sort of lost track of, you know, business as a, as a, as a, as a, as a means of creating sustainable societies and communities where Milton Friedman, you know, the, the sole purpose of business was making a profit. It just lost all the 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 humanity and the and the humility in, in, in what it is the businesses should be doing. And I think... You know, if I look back on um, on on any of the successful businesses that I've enjoyed working in, it's it's, it's been less about the economic success and more about the people that you're with. And I think just reminding ourselves that you know the, the economy serves broader society rather than the other way around. I think we've lost our way a little bit in that. And I think putting a bit of humanity and a bit of humility back into that conversation is um, is required. Quite frankly, it just it feels like it's it's easier to tell. Oh, Richard Branson, you know, here you're running these giant companies. Why don't you do it a little nicer, give a little more sick leave, give people a little more purpose and all that. When you're talking to the kid who's starting a business today, either it, it feels like they've bifurcated. Either they are dot com social media 19 year olds dropped out of college to make a zillion dollars on the next messaging app, you know, and they're hopeless, you know, on for our, they've got to just mature before they can even hear your message or they're the kinds of people that I'm interacting with who don't want to do some growth-based business anyway who already they have the ethos that you're talking about but they don't seem to have the kinds of businesses that can uh, operationalize to that point yeah and I think I think that the point that's germane to this and again one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is is, is the role of technology in this as well right. because you know what one of my motivations for writing was this this um this study of Oxford last year you know this um Frey and Osborne who talks about 47% of the types of jobs we're doing today are just going to go away so your baker in Burlington or whatever it is you mentioned you know the idea there's going to be this apocalyptic uh, tide of technologies and, I, and again I just I've just had so many experiences growing up in technology where a bit of humility in these conversations, and maybe it's because I'm British as well. So I, um, I don't know if I told you this, but I went to Singularity University for years uh -huh. when I started, right? So, so I'm there, and I, 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 I just spoke with those guys for the first time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> they're they're less horrible than I thought. They I thought they were just mean, horrible, Kurzweil. We're just going to upload everything to the brain. They still put all way too much faith in technology. Technology oh. seems so inevitable to them, but they're not. Horrible anti-human people, but that, that so, yeah. so that's 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 good to hear. <laughs> no, I, so, I, so I went over there in 2012, I think it was when right. it first opened. That was when the world was supposed to end the first well, time. That, that yeah. was it. So I turned, <laughs> I turned up. I got a one-way ticket just I didn't think I was yeah, coming yeah. back. But it was it was interesting, right? So I I went there with this. So I've got this technological optimism, and I've got this 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 British awkwardness and and humility and skepticism as well. So I turned up there, and. Um, I don't have told you the story, but so so I'd, I'd waited to, to meet Ray Kurzweil, who's obviously got you know a genius IQ and 
and, and all that stuff. But, but I was, I'd read his book and I was curious to read about, you know, where's, where's it going to lead? And so he'd written a book at the time called How to, how to Build a Mind, I think it was, or, or, some, or something like that. And um, so he trots out to do this presentation to 20 of us. And um, this is a true story. So he couldn't get PowerPoint to work. And so this young 20-year-old AV guys to come out. And I'm looking around the room going, we're supposed to be uploading our minds into the Matrix in 20 years. And <laughs> we're, we're, PowerPoint's not working. Right? And, but no one got it right. And so for me, there's this technological optimism and view that technology can shape and change. But, it's, but it, we're, we're agents of that change. It's not inevitable. And that's lost in the, the discussion. You know, we seem to think there's this tide of technology that's going to take over and you know, dehumanise us. When actually... The conversation I'm more interested in having with people is how do we use technology for the betterment of humanity more than making four or five companies astronomically rich? And I think that's the debate that we're having now, whether it's the European directives around privacy or whether it's you know the calls for them to be broken up in the US. You know, I just think that those are those are really interesting times, I think. I think that stuff is gonna happen. But injecting a bit of humility into this technological optimism or or inevitability that'll allow us to get back to creating great products on the high street in Burlington and, and connecting with each other again. So we remind ourselves what's important to us rather than just economic growth as you've written so eloquently about over the well, years. Right. Well, the trick is, I mean, I, I'm sure there are some people who develop a company thinking, even use Mark Zuckerberg for all we know, might have started Facebook thinking, I'm going to help people connect with one another in new ways, or at least Pro help guys probably, identify probably not. Help yeah. guys identify hot chicks on their college like campus. It, yeah. <laughs> well, it's connection. It's some, it, even that is more virtuous in a certain level than we're just going to uh, uh, extract value from people's uh, you know, data profiles and sell it to the Russian uh, Russian propagandists. You hope that wasn't in his business plan. You hope he didn't come up with that in his dorm in Harvard. <laughs> no, be... I think he was successfully, I think he was business hacked. But you know, if, if your business can be hacked that easily, and I don't mean computer hacked, but the, the, it's because it's not embedded with some fundamentally human value. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and you know, I've, 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 this is definitely one of your lessons. So the next thing that I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to think of how you take a new wave of capitalism and build something that embeds that value at day one. So I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to experiment at the moment with this investment fund mm -hmm. that takes all the cycles of, look, all the things I think caring about investing in purposeful businesses that have good leadership, that are good stewards of capital and create good jobs, be there for entrepreneurs to help them grow and scale their businesses, but then the proceeds of it, so the, the money that the private equity guys or the venture guys, do some good with that, right? Rather than rather than just buy yachts and jets and islands, you know, in the Caribbean. So that that feels like the next thing I want to experiment with the next twenty or thirty years, because right. that's, that's what I know. So right. how do you invert that model to do some good? So have well, the capitalist agenda. My, I mean, my my question though, and it, it's it's, I mean, it might be unanswerable. But my question is: is the is the is it the wrong machine for the job? In other words, is 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 sort of extraction based investment does the does the extraction from the original do more harm than the injection you do with the capital you've won uh, it's, uh, that's the paradox in that thing. and i think and i don't know but it's, it's what i know with unless unless 2045 and the singularity comes around i've probably got another 20 or 30 good years and inventing a completely new system it feels right. like it feels like this works if we could make it fair if we get this view of capitalism fairer and have an end state which isn't about yachts and islands and whatever else then that feels like a good iteration and gives us a chance whereas i i've, you know, I've read i've Look, I mean, you know, you're, you're a teacher on this. I can't see another model that will have the scale and impact in my lifetime, unless you believe 
that we're going to live forever. But um, so I'm working on the next 20 or 30 years, and I think an iteration on the model that we've got that has created wealth, that has created jobs, has created good livelihoods, could we take that a step further and embed some more social justice into it at the point of inception? Right. I guess the thing I worry about is, you know, when I look at the, uh, I mean, the LA Times a few years ago did a big article on the Gates Foundation, and they said, well, look, the the impact of just the capital sitting where it is in this S&P fund and the, the impact of the capital is doing more damage than the, the good that they're trying to do with the, with the funding. So, yes, yeah, so I get that. So, so if I give you an idea of some a flavor, sort of the sort of businesses that I've invested in personally. Yeah. So one phenomenal business in the UK called Olio. Olio is a connecting communities to supply um, to stop food waste. Hmm. So if you have some stuff in your fridge tonight that you're going away for the weekend, someone in your community take a snapshot and someone can have your food. So that's a business intrinsically at scale in large organizations can stop the wastage in food production, energy and stuff. So another business, a great business, Danish guy, um, Christian called Be My Eyes, which is a way where it connects uh, partially sighted or blind people through an iPhone app with people who need to use their vision for problems that they would otherwise struggle to solve. So again, there are businesses that fundamentally have a social purpose, not not impact investor. It has to be, you know, it has to be so socially good that the economic won't work. But something no, but that that's has- interesting. Yeah. So in other words, so it's not saying okay, instead of making this ridiculous plastic product and giving the profits to a rich person, we're going to make this ridiculous plastic po- product and give the proceeds to orphans, we're not going to make that ridiculous plastic product at all. That the exactly, they yeah. And I know this is really hard for most people in business to understand, but the idea is that the, the business will actually answer a human need to start. So the product the business is giving is actually a thing people need. And that's it. it well, it comes back to it, but it comes back to that point about. It's confusing about, to me. You don't have to create demand if, for it. If, if people back, actually need it. If we went back in history, I'm sure someone's written this before. Right? They must have done that. Create products that don't do any harm and people want, right? Can you, I mean, it's, it's so bloody obvious. And I think the idea for me is that I'm starting to see it now. There are businesses that want to be economically successful, but they don't want to do the damage that they've seen. You know the, those large-scale businesses. So, so, so I think there's going to be a growing trend for the next ten and twenty years of choices to make investments and support entrepreneurs who have that part of their brain switched on. So, I see, I see a lot of those types of opportunities today. But sometimes they either veer towards being not economically viable or the stuff I don't understand. But there's enough in that sweet spot of great businesses that are doing good whilst creating a model for products that customers want. And you know, Beacon represents that, I think. And I think that's going to be a growing trend, or at least that's what, I'm, that's what I'm betting on. Yeah, I mean, I was writing about that. I did a book a long time ago called Get Back in the Box. And uh, it was I wrote it just around the time that Jack Welch was head of GE, and he was selling all of their productive assets, the washing machine and all the things, because he realized you make more money lending money to people to buy a washing machine than you do selling them a washing machine. So he abstracted the company. And I, I ended that book by arguing basically that, you know, what about answering actual human needs? Then you don't even have to, I mean, I was being a little facetious, so you don't even have to give money to charity at that point because why take money away from a business that's actually promoting, uh, uh, helping human beings to, to, to give it to some, to some uh, unsustainable model for helping people you know so which is that and i didn't mean that in a capitalist sense but i do i mean there's a difference between business and capitalism you know i like the idea of the people running the business working for the business that they're the ones who should make the lion's share 
of the revenue. And if somebody invested at the beginning, well, gosh, let them do a, a, a convertible debt instrument. Pay them back and give them interest and let them go find something else to invest in. But it's in. interesting, Doug, right? Because I, I didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, even, you know, I'm, I'm talking about comparable debt stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. I learned that, you know, 15 years ago, but. If you're from my background and, and you go into business, you assume that, you know, it's the the brightest and the best and the well-intentioned. And when you get in there, you're like, look, these are just guys trying to make a bunch of money. They don't give a shit about the outcomes. And so, but there's been a change, man. I think it's that thing we talked about earlier where the model is so fundamentally broken for a generation coming through. I just can't see that as being acceptable, that you want to work in a business that, you know, is polluting the oceans or is, you know, is creating so much plastic that we're not going to have so many species left over or whatever else. And I think we're aware of that stuff now in a way we weren't 20 years ago. And so, you know, people are going to want to make more choices about A, where they buy their products and B, the types of businesses they're going to want to work in. So. Right. If you're going to go work for one of those companies that's destroying the ocean, then I mean, then you have to be like the the billionaires in that in that article I wrote. Then you've got to take the insulation equation and say, how much money do I need to earn in order to insulate myself from the damage I'm creating by earning all this money? You know, you've got to buy the land in New Zealand, and you know, but it's just not going to work. You really can't isolate. There's there's factors you won't take into account. The the bomb shelter thing, it, it, however good it looks in the movies, it doesn't actually. It doesn't actually work. And this is, that it's, again, it's that singularity story that I tell. There's just such a disconnect for me in terms of this sort of techno-optimism and the reality about what we're living, the problems that we're trying to get through every day, right? I was, I was explaining to him, and this is a true story, so I was, I was reading about the, I think it was the Elon Musk, the asteroid mine in titanium, and my uh -huh. wife came in my office and was moaning at me about taking the bins out, taking the trash out, and I was like, that's the moment, right? It's like, well, you're projecting forward into asteroid mining, the bins need, need taken out and your kids need taken to school still. It's like day-to-day -day life just doesn't feel connected to this sort of West Coast Silicon Valley vision. And, and, and for me, there's, there's so much that where business can be a force for good in those conversations. Uh, and particularly, I meet a ton of entrepreneurs that, that have a similar state of mind and a similar you know, aspiration these days as well. Um, so again, if you roll that forward, I think 20 years, I think this will be the norm. And I'm hopeful it'll be the norm when my kids, you know, hopefully starting businesses or coming into their working lives. I know. It's so... It's so uh sometimes disheartening to try to think about the future. I finally went to one of these, um, cause I'm a teacher now, you know? So I have, uh, for the first time I have, uh, retirement, uh, you know about these things. I didn't know. It's like, Oh my gosh, a future. Um, you know about retirement. <laughs> yeah. You take, you take like a little bit out of your salary every, every month. And then the school matches that amount of money and they put it in this thing, right? That you, that, old Doug gets when he when he graduates or whatever when he retire graduates retires right so I meet with the guy and he's doing these I'll show me on the computer these little models the little line yeah. then the little line goes up and goes oh we should average you know at least 4.3 percent per year you know in the conservative investments and then put this in and look at the line goes up and then by the time you're in you're 78 you're gonna have you know you know 1.1 million dollars it's like, oh, I'm like, ooh, I'll be a millionaire. I got $1.1 million. This is great. And then I'm looking at the exact, I mean, the granularity of his calculations or so. And I'm like, so if the oceans are two degrees Celsius warmer in 2045 than they are now, how does that affect that number? And he's like, huh? What are you talking about? And it's like, 
How can they be so granular on the future of the economy and the stock market when it's like there's such potentially cataclysmic changes happening everywhere else? But you think that that's also, it's an interesting mindset, isn't it? That I think that we've become too wedded to the ideas taught through business schools in the 80s as I've read about where that the world is inherently predictable and, and you can model everything as well. I think we're starting to understand now with sort of behavioral science and understanding of psychology and you know there's just so much about life that is messy and complicated and we've, we've, we've took those graphs of certainty right that you can, <laughs> you can you know old Doug will be you know buying his bit of an island in New Zealand yeah, with there that. You go. You know, it's just like it just life isn't like that and I think that's the other thing that we're starting to appreciate the complexity of and 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 2008 when the wheels came off, we're like, oh, where was the modelling to show us that that was going to happen? Yeah, right? and yeah, and, and yeah, a year later, people are building predictive models and running businesses as they are Excel spreadsheets, rather than going, actually, it's where humans interact and where human hearts and emotions and needs and wants connect, and that can't be modelled, right? So again, this is the thing that I I appreciate in businesses, which is and it, and it's and, it, and it's encapsulated under the title of culture which is somewhat intangible and, and it's the more interesting part of businesses where just people hang out and they do work together and they connect and they support each other. And you can't model that stuff, right? And so I think we've, we've become blindly obsessed with this idea that we can predict when actually the, the world's you know, accelerating and getting more complicated and therefore some sort of preparedness mindset rather than a prediction mindset is more important, I think. Right, right. That the future is not, I always argue, the future is not this thing that we predict. It's this thing we create in the present. It, you know, if you want, how about rather than, than preparing for the future, what if you want to, what about impacting the future? There you go. You know, it seems easier. No, but I think, I think again, it's it's the byproduct of the way businesses became mechanical. It's it's derivative, I think, of, um, what's the guy's name? Frederick Taylor from the turn of the century. Right. Who thought Scientific of management. Exactly, and yeah. Businesses are machines to be optimized. And we started to think of people as machines to be optimized. When actually, we all know that life's messy. Particularly if you have kids, right? right? You understand it's messy and complicated. And every day, you don't really know what you're doing. Right. So. But now we've gone from the machine metaphor to the computer metaphor. You know, so now it's a, uh, uh, instead of people being machines, it's, it's oh, my, my I, I'm not processing this properly. You know, the, the metaphors we use for, for human functioning, we're trying to optimize human beings for this economic uh, uh, program. Well, at last, I think, you know, degree in philosophy is starting to become useful. We don't understand consciousness, right? The idea that we can explain it and model it, you know, this has gone on for, you know, centuries and debates around what is conscious, what is the self, what is, what is the mind? And yet we suddenly think, hang on, if we can model computer science, we can straight line to the singularity where we'll understand the human mind and upload it. There's so much that's missing in terms of the logic in that argument, right? Well, totally, but the... the, the the evidence they use is the fact that you know behavioral finance works. You know, so if we can if we can fool people with this, it must mean that they are just programs, that they are just yeah. little little AIs. Well, I'm just hoping this is why. Again, it's it's that whole thing. I, I, I met a guy. Um, there's a guy at Stanford called Professor Yoav Shoham. I don't know if you've heard of him, but yeah. he's an AI specialist. I met him at a thing in Israel a couple of years ago, and I was saying, come on, like, he's he's one of the guys that's been doing this stuff for 40 years. I said, look, how far how far away is sort of general intelligence, machine intelligence? And he's used this metaphor that I think he's written about as well, which said, oh, if you think about general intelligence as being the galaxies and the stars, and we're stood on Earth, in the last 10 years we've stood up on a chair. That's how much closer we've got. Yet people think, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're going to be taken over by the machines. But the guys that know about this stuff go, it's just so far away. And we don't even understand what we're trying to build yet. And yet 
in the papers, you just read about yeah. the machines going to take over and kind of good luck off the back of it. So that, but again, the book was trying to inject a bit of humility again. Even if that is true in 20, 30 years, there's 20, 30 years of having to take the bins out and taking your kids to school and trying to put food on the table still, right? So let's keep trying to improve that rather than just this fatalistic view that you know, Terminator's around the corner. Right, or seemingly simple things like... Well, let's get the microscopic plastic fibers out of the ocean, maybe, right. and out of our fish. Maybe we can work on that. You know, if we're really at the brink of a workerless reality, well, then it, uh, maybe we should hire a few more workers and then figure out a way to make our fabrics differently or something else. Oh, but I always looked. I love the, the, your bit in the um, don't, don't throwing rocks at the Google's about you know, the dirty secret that actually people. Don't want to work, right? Some people that's okay. I can't remember the phrase you I'm used. I'm fine with that. Exactly right. Yeah. That's the, this myth of like the, this sort of the, Protestant Oh, we've got to get full employment and jobs and everyone. No, no, no. I mean, everyone wants to make some kind of a meaningful contribution to the world, but really? I would be fine with no job. I'm, so, I'll so, just sit and write. So one of the things I put yeah. in, in my book is that so we're experimenting. So I, we've got 600 people in my business at the moment, and we're trying to get half of them to a four-day week by 2020 by implementing technologies that, quite frankly, do away with some of the stuff they shouldn't be doing and sharing that economic benefit with shareholders and to fund one day less work on the same pay. So they get – that's the thing. So instead yeah. of working five days a week, nine to five, they can work four days a week, nine to five, exactly. or nine to five. And, and get the same money. Absolutely. It, and so, so rather than just being a sort of a philosophical or theoretical yeah. discussion around four or five days, which you do see a lot of, I'm going, we're, doing, we're, we're conducting an experiment, which is let's implement a bunch of technologies. Let's show the improvement – in performance, in effectiveness, and they share that benefit. And so my idea was if I could create a model that proves that people are happier, people work better, and guess what? A business can sustain it. Right. Then, then it would be a data point that some businesses could use. But the, the, the other motivation was if jobs are going to change again, which they have done throughout history, then where do people find the time to retrain or think about looking after elderly parents or their kids or, or quite frankly, just doing stuff that they want to do rather than working? Right. Rather than this sort of Protestant idea that we should be working harder and, you know, should be working seven days. It just makes no sense to me. Well, especially if we don't even have the the the... If our planet doesn't have the carrying capacity for that much productivity, well, it just—I mean, again—it just the, the, it's, it's so obvious. And again, you, you've been my teacher on this. You know, it's, it's a finite planet. It's an obvious statement. Growth is not possible in a finite planet with finite resources. It's that simple, right? And yet, the idea that we should be working harder, growing, and you know, taking extracting that value just seems like the wrong conversation, right? I mean, in that sense, the kinds of companies you're talking about building or helping other companies transition to are themselves transitory. In other words, they're not the, they're not the final solution yeah. because even they have a growth requirement. So, I mean, they can grow as long as other companies are being replaced, then it's okay for new ones to grow. Like a forest, it's a replenishing, but you can't have everything continue to grow forever. Yeah, and I think that, you know, but within that, just reminding ourselves that, you know, if you take the long view through history, the notion of work's a fairly recent idea. The, the idea of romantic love and marriage is a fairly recent idea. So the concepts that we have about work can radically change. And so for me, you know, right. we could navigate, rather than it being, you know, some sort of universal basic income, which 
which misses the point to me, I think. Yeah. You know, it's about how do we navigate some meaningful work, purposeful, but give people more time to do the things that would enrich their lives and make work a part of the discussion about what gives people meaning. And so that's, for me, it's trying to create some tangible steps. I'm advising, you know, a fund at the moment around how they bring the idea of the four-day week to their businesses as well. And they've got another 6,000 people. So again, they're ideas that people are interested in, but with an economic benefit. If people, you know, on average, I think there was a study that I wrote about in Germany where on average people work four hours a day, right? So there's another four hours a day where they're sat around on Facebook or shopping or hanging out or whatever. Why don't we just recognise there's an effectiveness and just pay people for that and let them get on with the rest of their lives? Well, I mean, I guess because what, and this is what I've been reckoning with lately, is... Do businesses even really exist to make money by doing business? Or are businesses themselves like those luxury apartments in Manhattan? Are they just the shells for massive amounts of, you know, ill-begotten capital from oligarchs around the world just and hedge funds just trying to shove them into something? They're containers for um, containers for capital. Not even real capital for for cr crime money, you know. Yeah. They're like uh, uh, the the banks in Miami during the cocaine boom. Well, Dallas has got to be some of that, right? So you know, and 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 you know, I've worked with the whole range of investors, and you know, but you know, where, where you know, I, I, the people that I see that are invested in businesses aren't off, often the source of that money, right? So who knows, quite frankly, but. You know, there are pension funds, there's definitely pension funds and there are definitely, you know, family offices and investors that you can see. But, you know, there's a whole other conversation, isn't there, around, you know, where, where you follow there's the money back to. There's a lot right? of cash out there that's, you know, I mean, and that uh, you can you can look at what's happening in America now and the rise of nationalism even as, as a kind of a distraction from, you know, the thugs who are, uh, you know, moving into positions of power. <laughs> well, I don't want to talk about US politics as I'm going to be here for a few days I don't want to alienate myself from what I believe is well, a large proportion of the population too. but yeah we've got it in the UK as well you know the, the whole it comes back to the early point right the whole system just seems completely short-circuited at the moment and you know there's some conversations to be had with it, with this ability for transparency and clarity you know that the, 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 the internet has created you know what's the next wave of that in terms of you know where we shine a light on some of the source of that money potentially but um, you know the, there's got to be change, right? There's, there's, there has to be change. You know, we wouldn't be an entrepreneur if there wasn't an optimism that we can do better in the future. And I think you know, it, it feels like it's coming. And what would you? What's what's your advice to to young people who you know they're coming out of college or even not going to college, and you know they 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 want to do something um, that's meaningful. They don't want to work. You know, they don't want to take a job in an advertising agency or whatever it is and just contribute to the confusion. I mean, how? How can they really judge whether the, the, the company that they're maybe going to get hired by or the job they're going to get, how can they tell in advance if this is the kind of company that's going to kind of care for them in the way that you're talking yeah. about? I mean, you never know. I mean, one of the things I never thought about when I was younger, so I guess if I was advising my younger self, is to think about the way that I think about diligence and stuff now. So have conversations with people. You know, there's lots of you know places online where you can get at least a flavor of what comes like the you know I don't want to sound like I'm 
just sort of pimping the beak or stuff. But no, that's that's one shortcut into right. you know heuristic. This is probably going to be a good company because it's not easy to get accredited. So and it's so, not easy to run a business in a really awful way if you are a B Corp. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you know, you, undoubtedly you could probably, yeah. you probably could, but ultimately it's another indicator of the spirit of a business. But the other thing is, you know, it's it's a long. I didn't really start work till I was twenty seven, and it's a long game, right? It's like the idea that you can everyone can fulfill their potential and follow their dreams like just you know follow your passions if you can but there's some practicalities of putting food on the table yeah and your social background and so you know it's it's just like just i think you know the, the, there's the, there's no replacement for hard work in quizness and endeavor but at the same time you know there is you know doing a bit of due diligence on the sort of businesses you're going to enter would be probably at least partial advice it would be it would give you at least an indicator of whether you're going to go and work for satan or not yeah, and it's a more difficult landscape to get appropriately employed right now. You know, it used to be if you had a college education and you worked hard, you really, I mean, certainly in the 70s and 80s, you could get something. You could, you know, even if you had to hold your nose a little bit, you could get a job and push through and have a home and, uh, you know, live as well as a teamster. So one of, one of the things we've we'll, we'll put into our business is we have a, a life coach in there as well because I often think about, you know, if you if you are a 20-year-old or, or, or whatever stage of your life, particularly if you're younger and you've got this life, this landscape which been which been sold to you around, everything's out of reach and then there's this machine apocalypse, you know, you know I want to have a conversation about what does success look like today? Right. And success for me was undefined. It was just doing interesting stuff with people I care about. And that's that for, for massive strokes of good luck and fortune, which anyone tells you that success is anything but that is lying. You know, you need that. It's for me, it's always been about, you know, how if someone spoke to me in my own life, but what, what, what's going to make me happy? That's more interesting. And being happy might be writing or it might be studying or it might be fishing or baking or, you know, that. I just think that, that, that this idea that the, the worst thing that I see in the business community is the idea of evaluations being the end state for people. You know, people, the, the bullshit talk about unicorns, creating unicorns. Yeah. I'm just like no, no one should, no one starts a business thinking of evaluation. You start a business because you want to solve a problem. You want to work with cool people. You want to do interesting things. And so anyone that's that's talking that stuff is toxic to me. And from an investment point of view, it's entirely the wrong mental model for what you're trying to achieve. And so I know. it's a byproduct. Well, you, you see the PowerPoint of someone talking about their new business idea. Then you get to that hockey stick slide. And it's just like, oh man, I was yeah. I went through that in the late 90s. I know what that is. I know how you calculate those things. I'll tell you what's interesting though, Doug. So actually, again, by getting older, what I notice is, and again, genuinely, the philosophy degree, which I thought was 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 vocationally useless 20 years ago. It's why, not why I did it. But now you are, you're always trying to sell a story. I mean, but the best entrepreneurs and the best people I've seen are just trying to project a compelling vision of the future that, you know, investors and people want to inhabit and so actually the skill sets for younger people are you know is to think about storytelling to think about the narrative you're trying to create, think about the purpose you're trying to inhabit as well rather than you know and it being an it being a a, a a process of becoming rather than an end state for people i want to do this because of this it's kind of like life will happen to you as you're going through the gears on this stuff and being having some humility about it and acknowledging that rather than going, you know, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. And it just, that, it just, the people I've, I've seen that have done that stuff usually end up with drink or drugs problem or on the second or third marriage. Uh, yeah. A sense of purpose is easy for me. I just want to, to, to lower the probability of species extinction. 
<laughs> that, that's, that, that seems like a good one. That's what I, I'm up for that. I'll sign up for that one. But as yeah, well. but you're right. But the way I'm trying to do it is, and this is what I've been working on the last 20 years, is what kind of a story can I tell yeah. to do that? And the story I'm trying to tell is that, oh, look, you know, the, the, the evolution of humans wasn't about survival of the fittest individual. It was about different forms of teamwork, different ways of collaborating or working together. And, you know, those who collaborate the best, you know, uh, have the best lives. I, and you're doing a good job, right? Honestly, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to be here. You've been an educator for me. Your work's inspired me. It's informed the way I've run businesses as well. So, and I think there's going to be a generation that pick up on this and think about, you know, hopefully those those assholes I described were trying to create unicorns might get a copy of, you know, the Team Human book and go, oh, maybe there is a different way where I don't have to worry about not having a shadow by the time I'm thirty. There or, is, you know, you know. there is, and you know, and and if you look at the data, more and more young entrepreneurs are taking less money lower valuations because they realize oh wait a minute i mean they finally they joked about it i mean and they he told me he used the book they joked about it on the mike judge show silicon valley yeah. you know that he realized oh wait a minute i could take a lower valuation and do better than a higher one it's like duh it's amazing but it's amazing though Doug. You, you know that now but I, I part of what i wrote about was you don't realize you have choices when you're younger in where you take money it's weird because you just think you get an offer and you need the money and then you end up in bed with you know, sort of pinstripe suit wearing guys that, you know, that um, I was, I was describing an experience when I was younger where I felt like, you remember in Tom and Jerry cartoon where Tom used to look at Jerry and Jerry would turn to like a roast chicken or uh -huh. something. And I used to feel like they look at you like a bag of money, you know, either diminishing or growing. Uh -huh. They look at you like there's just nothing behind the eyes apart from this, this look. And there's some great investors out there, but there's definitely those guys that, but you have a choice. You don't, and I didn't realize that because of my background, because of my education, because of where I was from. But, you know, if you're going to take money, take the right, if, if you have to take money, take the right amount from the right yeah. people. I know they look at that's the young entrepreneur doesn't realize they they look at the young entrepreneur the way record executives used to look at the garage band you know, these kids they're like matchsticks you know How can we get a little flame off one and chuck it and get another that's one it. Yeah. So, so again, there's an awareness of that. There's a, there's a culture around, and a lot of people have written about this now. That you have, you have a choice, right? And then just trying to think, it's a long game, right? And trying to think about, you know, can you do good along the way, and can you can you do something that's useful rather than that that you know Necker Island shouldn't be an aspiration for a young entrepreneur. I don't think. So what's what's next for you? I mean, because so, I'm assuming Reboot kind of rebooted you yeah, as well. So I'm excited. So I'm, I'm still involved. I'm the vice chairman of Simply Business, which um, which means I, I help, I mentor, I think about strategy. But I'm definitely thinking I want to experiment with some new models, this idea of creating a fund that has social purpose, not just impact investing, but trying to support entrepreneurs that have that in their DNA. And then with the proportion, I'm, you know, I'm not looking to make any more personal money. I want to do intrinsically in that model, create something that, gives back and crime. That sounds altruistic, but it really is about, could there be a model that is, that is uh, in its DNA, helps entrepreneurs, builds businesses, and then hopefully supports projects that rather than having to think about giving away a bunch of money by the time I'm 90. And again, you've been a massive influence yeah. in that. You know, I think about your comments around the Zuckerberg Foundation and something intrinsically flawed about making so much money, you've then got to think about how you give it away. Whereas if we could set up a model that creates value for shareholders and the bit that the investment house gets goes towards doing some good at right. point of source. Right, or it's just circular. You know, that the, if the shareholders could somehow be more satisfied with regular dividends than growth, then you get a circular economy instead of an extractive one. 
And it's whether, it's whether there are investment vehicles like the pension funds, for example, that are so embedded in that growth model. As modest as a lot of those growth sites, so when you get inside of it, you know, you think the private equity world would be these ridiculous returns, but you know, the, the expectations of growth is fairly modest for some of them. But, you know, some of them are so rapacious that they, they end up extracting so much value that it creates a drag on the rest of the market. So I just think, yeah, partly educating, getting the right types of investors that, and they're, they're out there, they do exist, or, or rather, I believe they exist. I've spoken to them in the past, so my next experiment is I'm on, on the process now in the next six months is can I put this thing together can I can I can I find those investors can I find the others in the investment community that want to support a venture that isn't just about exponential growth and extraction it's about trying to create economic value but at the heart of it do some do something decent with it as well well if you find the investors I'll find the things they can invest in there we go well, I'd <laughs> love to get you on board that's a, that's, that's a whole other conversation right we we'll see if we get that pension fund that little line tracking a bit further up for you <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. If I'm I'm being I'm being supported to do teaching now, so that's that's more than I ever. I never thought the world would just keep me alive. For but you look like you're enjoying stuff. it as well. It seems to be you're, yeah, you're yeah. Why not? No, I mean I I had a sense of purpose, and when I was 19, I decided I just want a seat at the table. I just want to be part of the conversation, you know. And if I can stay alive and be at the table, then you know, that's gravy. But you're leading the conversation as well. But no one oh. I, I, gen, I genuinely believe that. No, that, I, th I think that you know, the, the ideas and the way that you know you, you create this narrative that's exciting, that's interesting, that has the long view in history, I think is compelling. And I think it's going to be even more compelling to, to a bunch of entrepreneurs that are coming through. No, I appreciate that. I just, you know, the question is whether it, I have to see if it works. You know, so far though, we're... We're making some progress here. You wouldn't, not from the outward signs, not from the front page of the Times, but uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's other evidence. I, ab I absolutely believe you have to believe it, right? Because the alternative is, you know, just yeah. going and holding up in Belgrade or wherever and, and 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 just waiting for the world to end. And that doesn't seem like a particularly compelling view to give to my kids. To no, exactly. With kids, I can't. I can no longer just think. Well, I got a front row seat on the annihilation of our civilization. I can't. I can't go there anymore. Right. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Doug. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining Team Human today. Our guest was Jason Stockwood, author of Reboot, a blueprint for happy human business in the digital age. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peace. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.